Hello, and welcome back to the A24 On The Rocks podcast. I will be your host for this episode. My name is Kelly, and I'm here with two of my other co-hosts. We're missing someone else tonight. He had to drive to Atlanta. What he does in Atlanta is his own business, (laughs) which I mentioned because on this episode, uh, we will be discussing the, spoiler right now, wonderful, beautiful masterwork that is Moonlight, an A24 movie from 2016 that really put A24, I think, on the map. So it'll be our pleasure to discuss that on this episode. But before we get started, I wanted to let you guys know that with each discussion, we have a drink in hand, and my drink of choice for this episode is an Oberon. Eric, what are you drinking? I swear to God, I, I got the movie wrong. I thought we were reviewing La La Land tonight. <laughs> now, why would you, why would you think I, that? It's not. We're not reviewing La La Land. I oh okay. We're reviewing Moonlight. Okay, uh, I, I've seen that too, so it's okay. Um, I'm drinking an embrace. <laughs> I didn't get that joke before today. <laughs> I'm drinking a Embrace Equity New England IPA from Eastern Market Brewing Company because I thought it would be on point for this discussion. My name's Eric, and up next we have Kevin. Good evening, world. This is Kevin K. Kahn-Kanachek, and tonight I am drinking a little ditty from the Central Standard Distillery here in Milwaukee. It's their North Brandy, but it's mixed with Hofbrau Brew. So it's a German beer mixed with Wisconsin brandy, put up into a bottle, and served over ice. It's absolutely flippin' delicious. Yeah. Okay, so everybody, like I said, welcome back to our podcast and our discussion today. As previously mentioned, this movie we're going to be talking about is Moonlight, directed by Barry Jenkins as his second feature film. It's loosely adapted from a unproduced play by Terrell Alvin McCraney called In Moonlight, Black Boys Look Blue. It was, Eric, this is an independent film, correct? Yeah, but it, this is, uh, as Kevin was telling me beforehand, this is the first film A24 actually produced. Out of all the films they have distributed so far, this is the first one they produced. So A24 actually put their money into it, like personally to make when it. When I say it kind of put A24 on the map, I was actually extremely on the ball. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> it's As more than a distribution company as a production company. Because, yeah, I, I feel like after Room and Ex Machina the year before, they did... They have some, they had some credit, but now they're, I think, taken more seriously as a production company, for sure. Yeah, definitely. And I remember seeing this movie. I'll say now, too, this isn't my first time watching it. Um, Eric, I know it's not your first time. Kevin, was it your first time? Yeah, actually, it was. Okay. So I think, Eric, you and I saw this back in 2016, correct? I think I saw it in theaters. And then didn't we watch it together, too, though, uh, after um, when it came out to streaming? Maybe or you something? are right. Yeah. But what yeah. an impactful movie that this is. Like, you could tell that it was going to be a classic right away. And even on this rewatch, I was just blown away once again. That said, an extremely award-winning film, very highly nominated. It got, I think, the recognition that it deserved to have, except if you want to talk about La La Land. <laughs> <laughs> Eric, do you want to talk about that for a sec? 
the La La Land yeah, Moonlight what's the, uh, controversy. What's the controversy? Well, basically, Best Picture came up, and La La Land was like a very, uh, it was a huge film that year, because it was like a Hollywood musical, and everybody kind of thought, oh yeah, the Hollywood musical, like throwback to old Hollywood, that's going to win it. And I think it was Warren Beatty, uh, he got the envelope, and I guess he got the wrong envelope when he was reading, uh, or when they were reading out the Best Picture winner, and so he said La La Land, and I think on the envelope it actually said Best Actor La La Land, so he actually... He just was given the wrong envelope. I I don't think there was anything insidious or, you know, uh, controversial. It was just Warren Beatty making a mistake and also the Oscars making a mistake. They read it off and I think the whole La La Land, like the directors and producers walked up there and then they saw the envelope and they said, like, it's not us. Like, you, you guys won. Moonlight, you won. And and then like all those people had to come off stage and the directors, producers, writers of Moonlight had to come on this on stage and just be like, oh, wait, yeah, we, we won, you know, <laughs> what? and uh, it was a really weird, you know, awkward, uh, t- like 10 minutes there. But it was unconventional yeah. way to win best Oscar for a completely unconventional movie. Uh, absolutely like what i mean it is like groundbreaking in so many ways all the way up to it winning this these awards and recognition in the end like that's just crazy Mm -hmm. eric thanks for telling us that for sure (laughs) yeah i i remember i love watching i i like have a odd part of me where i still love watching the oscars so i was watching when it happened and it was it was strange yeah definitely well this said too i kind of wanted to ask you kevin like as somebody who hasn't seen this movie before i want to know the impact, the like immediate, what did you think was going to happen? What actually happened? Just riff. I want to hear it. Beautiful. So as you alluded to, I absolutely knew of this movie's existence and the fact that it won an Academy Award and that it was groundbreaking um, for the subject matter at the time that it won. We had just really started seeing um, a lot of headway into a lot of gains for equality among the LGBTQ plus community. We had really started to see a lot of of more acceptance, um, equality across the board. And when this movie was created and I knew that the subject matter related around, you know, African-American culture, black culture, and in this circumstance, gay culture, it was kind of... Uh, that message was still strong enough all the way through 2023 when I finally get to the movie that I know that that's the message of this movie going into it. I also know that it was widely regarded as a beautiful movie. And as you said, right when we started this full thing, that it was, you know, spoiler alert, gorgeous, phenomenal, all of those things. So I knew about that from just the, the we'll call it the zeitgeist, right? The Just the cultural conversation around this movie. Going into it, I knew that I wanted to give myself a great space to watch it. I wanted to give myself good sound, good lighting. I wanted to give myself all of the trappings that you need to really embrace a movie for the first time. And I'm really glad that I did because, like you said, right off the bat, you can always tell. You can already tell that there's something special about this film. And every moment that I find myself writing something down about it being beautiful or I really enjoyed this taste or something, I was not surprised at all. Meaning that it started out on such a high note that every note that it hit was a continual uptick of that of that peak and it just continued to deliver on all of those different notes. And when we to break those down, we can kind of elaborate on why I thought about those things. But I just was super impressed with the two hours of how it kept me elevated, interested, 
Mm -hmm. um, and want to just learn more and make me appreciate something that I already kind of appreciated. So that was really kind of a cool juxtaposition of seeing the content on the screen and knowing that all of the things that everyone said about this movie are absolutely validated and, and rewarded and not just my opinion, but everything that I learned about the movie afterwards and doing my reviews and looking at the interviews and kind of going down my notes and just every single person who's like, this is an A plus or a nine out of 10 or a nine, 10 out of 10, whatever it may be, it's all of those things are validated. So uh, it was just a really cool movie viewing experience for me. Yeah, I like the word that you said that you it kept you staying elevated while you watched the movie because I know exactly how you mean by that. And you said it hit those notes and then it kept hitting them. And that's so rare for a movie to be able to do. And something about this movie too is I think that one of the reasons it's able to do that so well is that if you break it down, the plot isn't too complicated. It's a pretty simple enough plot, but it is powerful, emotional, like over your head. And I think that that balance is what strikes it as just keeping you there with it the entire time on top of the cinematography and general pacing of the whole story. But Eric, I wanted to ask you kind of about your thoughts on the plot. Did you find it, like I said, simple and powerful? Do you find it something else? I'm kind of curious your thoughts um, and how engaging that made the whole story. I, I, I don't want to call it simple because like, like we've been saying, this film was such a groundbreaking film that it had never, like, this kind of story had never been shown on screen. Like, the sh the story of a black queer man and what it takes to grow up in a community that doesn't accept you. And uh, Ter Terrell McCraney, he actually said, in communities without privilege or power, uh, men seek to gain it in other ways. And one way in which males do this in such communities is to try and enhance their masculine identity, knowing that it often provides a means to more social control in a patriarchal society. And showing this kind of toxic masculinity and how it permeates our society and also marginalized communities a lot, it's, I, I don't want to call it simple. I, I, I think the, at its core, it's a character study of one person growing up being gay and also growing up with a mother as an addict, which also, like, I don't think I've seen that before in film. So I think this film has a lot of depth to it. It doesn't have, like, an uh, extremely complicated yeah. plot. It just has a lot of depth to it, I would say. Yeah, definitely. And, yeah, that's the... There's so much going on with this story, so I don't mean simple as, like, like drip down or anything in that way. Kevin? Yeah. Here's here's what I took from when, when you said simple and I agreed with it in the sense that it is a tale of, of it's very biographical in a lot mm -hmm. of ways, right? It's a very real tale of the upbringing of our playwright um, and as well as the upbringing of our, our director, um, Barry Jenkins. They talk about it that Barry Jenkins and um, Terrell Alvin McCraney both grew up in the same neighborhood on the same block and attended the same elementary school. So a lot of these things that Terrell wrote about when he wrote the play 10 years before the movie even came out, he could relate to these things already. And it goes on to actually come out that when Barry Jenkins was approached with this project, he was described it as, this is a movie. It isn't about you, but it's about you. And that's all it took. And he was immediately hooked and he read the screenplay and or wrote, yeah, and then wrote the screenplay based off of the script and it just continues on. So the point that I'm trying to make is that because it's so biographical, it seems simple because it's truly just their lives and what they dealt with. And 
it's so deep, but it's so we just see it and we just feel it and we're immersed in it. And we'll go on to that when we get to cinematography. But mm-hmm. wow, just great. Yeah, I saw a New York Times review that said it's almost unbearingly personal. And at the same time, it's an urgent social document. And like I'm saying, where it's this like line that's being walked between these two things and it just hits. And it's a story that I'm so glad is out there and so beautifully made. And I want to talk about how beautifully made it is, but I want to talk about one of the themes first. Like I said, there's a lot going on. There's a lot of themes. And the one that we're already talking about, which I think is maybe at the forefront, is this performed masculinity, especially among Black men, especially how they're usually portrayed in any kind of film, and how this one breaks that down and shows us from childhood to adulthood. And we know this character. We follow him along until he is the way that he is. It just like jaw on the floor for me. I love the way that they break down masculinity throughout this film, even if, and I'm not saying that it should have the gay aspect removed from it, but even if that part was removed, that performed masculinity is so well shown. Eric, do you want to kind of touch on this theme? Yeah, definitely. Um, It's definitely a theme that closely resonated with me. Uh, The other two people here know this, um, but I guess our podcast listeners don't know this. I am a openly bisexual man, and um, for years I kind of felt like not a lot of people needed to know I was bisexual, and growing up I kind of felt this pressure to be more masculine, not quite to the extent, uh, extent that like Sharon did. There was definitely a toxic masculinity growing up in my community too. Uh, I was bullied, I was called gay slurs and you know I always had to kind of put up walls and um I feel like you know our society wants to box people in and you know even when I got to college it was a more accepting atmosphere of like queer people but uh I was kind of constantly made to feel I had to be either gay or straight and not equally attracted to both men and women and that still persisted into adulthood you know I'm married to a woman and I felt like a lot of people when I came out wouldn't believe me when I said I was bisexual um and this includes you know even a few of my close friends didn't believe me when I said it. They thought I might have just went through a phase or I was bi-curious. And that kind of uh, toxic masculinity, I think, just permeates our society, like I was saying before. That's why this film is so great. It's like an even more extreme um, case in growing up in a toxically masculine community because if... If you don't show that you're masculine, you will, you know, you're going to get the shit beat out mm-hmm. of you. You know, like I I took some verbal abuse growing up. But here, you know, like that there's some very extreme consequences for coming out as gay um, in, you know, marginalized communities. And that's why, like, this film is so good at showing self-acceptance and the guide or like the journey to it. And it's so good at showing how people try to pigeonhole men and kind of force them to become someone they really aren't. And Hollywood also has a really long history of not making black people into fully fleshed out characters with depth. And there also uh, there aren't, like we were saying, a lot of great depictions of black queer people in cinema. <laughs> That's why this film is so unique. It tackles the subject of toxic masculinity and, uh, you know, trying to come to a journey of self-acceptance. It tackles it so wonderfully by doing it with these intimate camera shots, intimate cinematography. It it really is so unique and groundbreaking. I've been saying that over and over again, but uh, it's, 
it can't be said enough. Yeah, it so shows like when that tough exterior <laughs> is just what it is. It is an armor, mm-hmm. and it is an, an yeah. armor built based on how you had to survive growing up. And mm-hmm. oh, they just break it apart in such a good way. Uh, Kevin, I like <laughs> the the toxic masculinity is absolutely a massive part of this first theme. But I think the positive masculinity is also something that can be taken away very much from not only the front first act but this entire mm-hmm. film i mean we get great characters like what our Juan character played by you know mahershala ali like that character his performance there's a reason that he won supported actor for that role like that was absolutely incredible and the fact that our director only put him in for the first act and mm-hmm. knew that removing him after one act was going to be absolutely jar-wrenching for the audience just goes also to show, again, how effective his character was. But my original point is, is his masculinity, what is displayed on the screen, is one of its flawed masculinity, right? He does have this caring aspect, this fatherly aspect, where he's um, only cares about maybe the... Uh, the people that are kind of downtrodden in his life and he wants to take care of them, but at the same time, at what cost? And we see that later with some of the the drug um, relationships that that character has. But initially, his character is established as someone who does have some some good qualities of, of what generally is accepted as a masculine character. We don't have a ton of other great examples. I suppose adult Kevin in the third film may be another example of what masculinity can be looked at as a healthy one in the sense of he's kind of come full circle and accepted maybe who he is or kind of where he fits. And he talks about his son a lot. Mm -hmm. And it's that same idea, right? It's that paternal masculinity that there's still that aspect of it. Um, And then of course the lack of father figure in little's life, like in general. So all of those things kind of um, tailor on themselves, but it's still the same theme just with, with a little bit of a, a twerk on it. Yeah, and you're so right. It is that there is this like positive masculinity. The fact that he like lifts up his community all the way to the, the actual film showing us he is helping Little keep his head above water. He is teaching him how to survive out there um, as only like a figure like him could do. And the way I'm jumping right into cinematography at this point, because that's such an iconic shot and it, it mm-hmm. says so much and... Something that stood out to me on the second watch even more so is I don't know that I've seen another movie that keeps the camera half in the water at the same time. Jaws, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I haven't seen Jaws, so it doesn't count. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> oh, yeah. Everyone's turning off the podcast. They're like, this woman doesn't know film. <laughs> but I love that we are in the water, too. It's like this in between of it's it's a struggle and it's you see these like waves crashing in and you're keeping your head just barely above the water too then you see him as he actually starts to learn how to swim and he's actually laughing and now it feels like we're going with the flow of it and we know it's going to keep moving but it's just they could have shot that a number of ways but just like every other part of this movie from my perspective everything is so intentional I know we just talked themes and now I'm jumping into cinematography and I decided we're going to stay in cinematography for a little bit longer. <laughs> Do either of you have, I mean, there's so many, but so. I want to give us the chance to kind of talk about maybe some specific shots that stood out to you that you just like really want to show your appreciation for at this time. 
Eric, you um, can go ahead. Oh, oh, Eric, you first. I, I lied. Think. Kevin, you go. All right. So the first saw, <laughs> scene that came to my mind right away um, was the scene after um, Little is offered to stay at Juan's house. And he spends the night in the room at, and everything is white. Everything is white. The, 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 the whole room is white. And it really, really, really gave me this sense of just peace and calm and how it's a rescue and a haven and a place for, for him. And he accomplished that just by color. And I was like, phenomenal all right we are i'm already hooked whatever you're doing I'm, I'm on the rest of the way because his color usage was phenomenal obviously this was set in miami and the fact that they stuck to their guns and said no it has to be here in miami i don't care if it's going to cost 30 percent more which was literally what they quoted as saying if they would have taken the tax breaks and moved out of the state hmm. they could have saved a whole bunch of money and for an independent film that doesn't have a bunch of money to begin with for them to creatively say i'm sticking to these guns because of all of the reasons that we see because miami's so gorgeous but it's also like a, a dirty gorgeous. And we see that with a lot of these other establishing shots. Um, even the the opening scene where we get that big 360 and we see everything, right? We get the drug dealer on the corner and then mm-hmm. we get Juan as he's interacting with him and the, the old man. It's just every, you get immersed within the first two minutes of this film. And it's like, I'm keeping you here. And it does so many different things too because I'm now thinking back I'm like oh yeah and then we get that camera the jarring footage as he's running through the field that is like a handy cam Um, and then we get the direct staring into the camera first person personas throughout all three of the acts so the Mm -hmm. fact that he's consistently taking these things and using them consistently through all three acts is brilliant breaking that fourth wall down and having that actor or actress stare straight into the camera and address the audience was brilliant it was quoted as basically he decided, uh, Barry Jenkins, that he was going to take kind of the elements he saw on stage. Shakespeare, for example, and Hamlet, there's many times when he's literally addressing the crowd, like the mm-hmm. audience themselves. And that's what makes people immersed in the product itself. So he's like, well, I'm just going to do this in film. I could continue about the pastel colors and all the different scenes. We get the the one famous, not the famous scene that sticks out in my mind where the mom's wearing red and you get the neon in her room as she's about to follow a John in the door and she's screaming silently at mm-hmm. Little and you don't get anything but the silence there and then the colors and just that whole scene in general was, was brilliant. Um, little staring, or um, not even Little, um, the second, uh, Chiron, when he's staring at the mirror before he snaps mm-hmm. and goes to school the next day with the blood all over his face and the water. Um, the bathtub shots, we just talked about the ocean. Even the the shots at the diner and how the, the light of the diner is just, that's the focal point of everything, the warmth of it, how it's dark everything outside, but the warmth is inside the diner. Uh, I'm continuing to go because, like you said, there's so many different yeah. things that grab my attention. There was that shot in the diner when the door is open and you could hear the cars rushing by and all of a sudden the car noise turns into the ocean waves mm-hmm. and just like the subtle sound mixing that went into that scene on top of it all. Uh, it, was, it was just brilliant. So those are just a couple of my highlights and I'm sure I missed a couple. <laughs> yeah, just a couple. <laughs> yeah, just just a couple. <laughs> no, you hit a lot of the good ones. I remembered on this watch specifically the Paula scenes, his mother, Naomi Harris, every single actor in this movie just took my breath away. But her impact on this movie and the way that they filmed her shots broke my heart. And another usage in the cinematography that they use is they will purposely cut the sound and the visuals away from each other on like really close shots of people's faces. And it's disorienting. But it makes you listen harder, but it makes you focus on the face harder. Those purposeful, just like artistic, and that doesn't even describe it enough, but 
it changes your perspective and your experience while watching the film. Eric, I want to give you a chance to talk on this too. I want to even focus uh, more on the shots of people look like staring right into the camera. They feel like portraits, like artistic portraits of people. And they really, I don't know, they make you feel like you kind of know this person uh, in a way, especially that shot um, of uh, Sharon staring into the mirror um, when, after, you know, he got the shipyard out of him and he is putting his face into the ice and then, like, that, that overhead shot of him putting his face in the ice is one thing, because you see this blood come into the sink, uh, the sink water with ice, you know, in the sink. And then you get a shot, like, from the the mirror. The camera is supposed to be the mirror, but it's also what Chiron would be seeing um, as he's staring at it. And I, it, it makes you feel so deeply, like, how Chiron is feeling at that moment, too. And at the same time, it is just like this portrait of a person. And it, it's one of those cases in cinema where you could take every shot and like separate it mm-hmm. from each other and it would look like photographs. And uh, I, I have I've seen so many stills from this film since it came out. And you can tell it's it's like a film that was just photographed one by one throughout the whole thing. Yeah, that ice in the sink scene for me, too. This movie makes you feel every experience and emotionally, obviously it's extremely deep, but that scene too with the ice, it juxtaposes the amount of like, it's literally a temperature check because everything that Mm -hmm. happens before that is like everything that is causing heat into your body. Like the embarrassment that he faced, the passion not long before it, this finally being vulnerable, all of these warm feelings, and then the embarrassment, rage, shame, being lectured at until he can't even hear who's talking to him anymore. All of that followed immediately. We cut to a really cold scene with his face in the ice, and you're like, it's that kind of one after the other that just like how hot something is and how cold it is on so many levels. It's so much symbolism. I don't know who wanted to talk first. I'm not sure, depending on what we're going to talk about. I want to talk about the cuts in between uh, one, two, and three, and the little notice between the difference there. Uh, I thought that was incredibly effective, the complete use of blackness and darkness to cut off an existing chapter, to put that behind in the viewer's thought, to leave a five to ten second gap where you're looking at a black screen, with the small exception, and then Mm -hmm. you move on to the next one. Uh, Eric, were you going to talk about the black screen there at all? Uh, no, actually. Okay. I, well, I was going to talk about... Uh, just real go quick, ahead. though. Yeah. So between Act 1 and Act 2, we get the black screen, and there's a small blue dot that flashes yeah. about twice, or maybe three times. And between the sex, next scene, between 2 and 3, we get, it's changed to red. And exactly what you just said, Kelly, that's that's all I needed to hear. Like, that's it. You've got the cold side of it, or the, the, the emotional, and then just... I don't know, just the juxtaposition between red and blue and those two mm-hmm. scenes just seemed uh, a lot of what, what they were going for. Yeah, it's the turning point in his life where he was finally, I'm going to be a little more vulnerable. No, I'm not. I'm actually going to completely now disengage and harden myself and be cold. And I mean, chef's kiss a hundred times, Eric. Yeah, uh, I definitely wanted to focus on the shot too of uh, Juan holding a Little in the sea and uh, how this film uses um, the ocean and the beach as kind of a stand-in for comfort for Chiron, and it all derives from that scene. 
And what also, like Kevin was talking about here, was uh, positive masculinity. All the men in this film that are actually positive to uh, Sharon's life, they're vulnerable mm-hmm. people. They're people that are allowing themselves to be vulnerable with Sharon. I, I love the Mahershala Ali's depiction of Juan, and also this film is showing a drug dealer who is actually a very positive like figure in Sharon's life, but like with the caveat that he has he's a drug dealer and is selling his mom drugs and you know you wonder how Juan might have gotten to this point and it was the same where Chiron ended up doing that because you know he went to juvie he didn't graduate and he just got thrown right into the street out of out of juvie and you would probably think that maybe the same things happened to Juan too yet inside like Juan is actually this vulnerable just a good father figure to Sharon in his life when he's just there with him one-on-one. And that dichotomy is so brilliantly done. I I definitely think that scene in the ocean, though, it really took home Juan's character. And it it probably won Mahershala Ali the Emmy, too. And just, like, it was just so beautifully done. There's the end of his story arc, too. Not the Emmy, sorry, the Oski. Yeah, Oski. The The end of his story, the Oski. The end of his arc being left to the interpretation of the viewer, too, was so brilliantly done Mm -hmm. because it was a cautionary tale for what happens to, to Black's character, essentially. Like, he can be this positive outlook, but at the end of the day, he's a drug runner who's probably going to be taken out at any point in time because that's the nature of the job and it probably destroyed um sharon's character to have that influence ripped out from his life and it's just how you know it's all just so you know it could just taken away from you at a moment yeah we're talking about vulnerable men and men that hang out by the ocean with sharon (laughs) and the ending. So we need to talk about Kevin as a character, as a friend, as something more. For me, that third act, I want to talk about all the acts, but that third act, Kevin, is just my heart swells. What a beautiful story between the two of them and a rekindling and a, like a negotiation of terms with like a lot of good intentions. It just all, I'm glad that we got to see the movie end in the way that it did. But let's let's talk about Kevin. That's a movie title as well, isn't it? So there's something about Kevin. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> but yeah. let's talk about the Kevin of this movie. Um, Eric, would you like to open us up? Well, Kevin, you know, was uh, Sharon's like childhood friend and ended up becoming his one-time lover. Um, and that scene on the beach is another scene, you know, where... They, like, okay, the two colors in this film, I, I'll just go right here. This is what Terrell, Terrell uh, McCraney said. Uh, the dichotomy between black and blue stands for uh, tough and vulnerable, with black body black bodies often hovering between the two. In Sharon's situation, the black body, which can be seen as inherently vulnerable in American society, must be tough in order to survive, as seen by Sharon's final very masculine and dominant identity. But, like, in this scene with Kevin where they, you know, share an intimate moment, uh, it's way more blue. And it's just, like, the most vulnerable scene we've seen from the film so far. And I would say there were some, you know, vulnerable moments when uh, Little and Juan, they shared vulnerable moments, but in a different way. And, you know, in the end, you know, we do finally get that uh, quote, you're the only man that's touched me. Sharon says that to Kevin. And... 
in that scene where they share an intimate moment, it, it there was like a real like I see who you are and I'm okay with it. And he never felt that before um, growing up. It was something that like he like was constantly struggling with this self acceptance and who he really was and who he wanted to portray to the world. And obviously that leads him to becoming a extremely buff uh, drug dealer. <laughs> you know, the the character of Kevin, he's put there as somebody, and not just like as a pro- a plot mover, but somebody that can be vulnerable with Sharon, even though we do get a scene of him ending up having to beat up Sharon, but like it was because if he didn't beat him up, then the bullies probably would have beat him up and then he would have been bullied too. And it's just this cycle of toxic masculinity that just keeps like rolling down a hill, but it actually comes back in the end to be a happy ending. And just the vulnerability, I think that you feel from the film, it really like hits you hard. Yeah. I like that. Kevin's like, um, he is like an opposite of Chiron in a lot of ways in that, especially during their teen years, he's like bombastic and sexual and talking about it. Mm -hmm. And, moves around with a lot of confidence and even as a kid he gets along with the bullies but he gets along with Chiron and he's the only like bridge between them he's the only one in those shots that all the bullies are staring at us he's not part of it until he you know does what he needs I say needs to do see how even like <laughs> I am like caught up yeah. in it uh Kevin do you want to talk about Kevin I do so uh first thing I want to talk about is um the actor a little bit. So Jarrell Jerome is the one who plays 16-year-old Kevin. And I thought that he did such a great job in bringing forth somebody who the audience had to question his, I guess, his authenticity, his his motivations, had to kind of look at him from a perspective of whether or not we care about our main character and how much we entrust in in Kevin and how that beach scene does such a huge job of moving forward, not just the whole plot of the of the film, but of our characters in general. So Jarrell Jerome's um, performance during this was fantastic, and it came out that he was basically a high schooler um, that was basically caught up in a, um, a casting net, we'll say, when they were looking for younger individuals in the Miami area, and he had just started his undergrad when he got this role. So it's truly one of those things where he was kind of green around the ears and learning uh, about the trade in general. Um, So to be put into that situation where I can't imagine those guys on that beach trying to film that scene, everybody must have been nervous as hell. The director, both the kids, Mm -hmm. they weren't allowed to interact with each other a lot before these scenes we we hear that they basically had to um stay apart when they were learning these things and barry jenkins was very much under the idea that they had to to chop wood as he says so figure it out figure it amongst themselves it's a it's it's a certain way that actors basically can get a lot more passion out of their performances if they somehow can figure out the motivations of their characters without being told exactly how to do it so there wasn't a lot of rehearsal between these two guys before they got into this scene and i think it was just done just done really well um you had touched on it kelly that um our older kevin has this warmth about him and i kind of also talked about it when i said the diner had that that vibe about it Um, but the performance in general especially in that scene where he cooks 
um, the meal, mm-hmm. right? Where we get the diner scene where he goes through and he cooks the meal for Black and the love and just the physical acting that had to go into that whole thing. And just, I liked his character. I liked the way that he moved things forward. And it truly was a tale of two people. And it couldn't have been done without all of the Kevins, all three of them, really. Go ahead, Eric. Yeah, and I, I want to definitely talk uh, about the last scene with Kevin, t- or Kevin cooking him the meal. Uh, there's a thing with food in this movie and how... You know, Sharona is definitely a food insecure person because his mom is a drug addict and she loses her job and eventually becomes a prostitute. But like all of her money is probably going towards drugs. And so uh, Juan and Teresa, played by Janelle Monet, who is a very famous musician, actually, they nurture him with food. And that is kind of the pathway into uh, Sharon opening up to them. And then now later we have Kevin cooking uh, Sharon a meal. And it is this kind of like nurturing. And he even says it like, uh, this is grandma rules. You have to open up to me uh, when I when I make you food. And I think that's very understated just in general and just people cooking for each other. Just what a simple act of love and nurturing that is. And I think that that final scene, you know, Kevin cooking from it kind of opens the pathway for Sharon to finally, you know, feel vulnerable and to feel self-acceptance again. But also it's like makes a lot of sense for Kevin's character to end up being this person who is a nurture wants to nurture people and wants to offer them food. I don't know. It just makes sense for both the characters where they ended up, you know, mm-hmm. Kevin, you know, opening up his own restaurant and like uh, after he apparently went to prison and everything. I don't think it's his diner. I think he's a line okay. cook. Okay, he's a Kevin being a line cook um, at this restaurant after he went to prison, just trying to be have an honest job that was like such a interesting thing like it makes you wonder where Sharon might end up you know because he has been a drug dealer for so long like can somebody um who either went to prison or got into the drug game like what does that feel like for that person and it definitely leads it's a question at the end what will Sharon end up as but at least he has his self-acceptance and somebody that loves and nurtures him to lean on yeah at least that door was opened at least the one person who could really see him saw him and yeah it's just yeah i know that he says and we've already said it too you're the only man that's ever touched me but uh he could make me cry just thinking about it now because Mm -hmm. it's more than just that it is so much more (laughs) i mean Mm -hmm. what else like i don't want to even there's it's such a great mastercraft of a story. It's like anything that I could say on top of it is just like, I don't even want to dilute it with my own added narrative. I love, I'm like, everybody <laughs> needs to just see this and experience it. And that's what it is, too. This is like exactly. what a movie you, is. You experience it. You don't have to overanalyze it. And there's a mm-hmm. lot of this. Like it, For us, sometimes we do overanalyze it. But that's mostly mm-hmm. the point where we're trying to pull blood out of a stone, as we say, because the movie is terrible and we need to make content. This one doesn't have any of those problems, and we can just rave on it, and, you know, I'm sure we can continue to talk about it for for a very long time, but a movie that's simplistic in its theme, but also finds a way to really deliver it on all formats is just so enjoyable to watch. Yeah, and so refreshing, this whole, the whole entire thing. Um, We need to touch on soundtrack as well, and... I remember watching this and like downloading, not downloading, streaming the soundtrack afterwards because it 
like the word I just used and will reuse is it's refreshing. It's like a high art kind of soundtrack for this story of extreme poverty and drug-ridden streets. They put this beautiful symphony on top of it that completely enhances the, like, the choices of the film. So perfectly used. And the way that as Chiron is getting tougher, colder, harder, the theme that we hear when he's a child that's super shy starts to get a little distorted as well. So these kind of thoughts follow through. But then we have contemporary music going in. And before I keep talking about it forever, I need to let you both weigh in on it. Um, I'm usually picking on Eric first every time. So why not continue in that suit? Eric, go ahead. Uh, yeah, I definitely loved the the classic. There was classical music in this, but then there was some beautiful like instrumentals, kind of minimal, minimal horn sections, very minimal like instrumental music at points and completely juxtaposed I guess the atmosphere that we were in but then at the same time like our camera shots were so beautiful that it was almost like a beautiful symphony to go along with all this amazing cinematography that we were seeing the choice to put like kind of this more minimal instrumental music in this film Barry Jenkins himself said he wanted to depict the hood as like this art house uh world where he's looking at it very artistically as opposed to in other films we always you know see it depicted as this kind of fast-paced like action and they put hip-hop into a lot of uh films that are placed in the hood but barry jenkins wanted to look at it completely differently plays into the vulnerability of the whole film but also just kind of uh it's it really brings home like how artistic this whole film is Mm -hmm. kevin the music man Mm -hmm. So, this score was created by one Nicholas Bertel. Um, Nicholas Bertel is basically a, a Hollywood score composer, uh, and he's done very well for himself uh, in that genre. He was also responsible for the uh, backdrop for The Big Short, which came out in 2015, yeah. um, and then, of course, this one that came out right afterwards. I noticed the soundtrack at least made note of it within the first, you know, five, ten minutes, as I usually do if it's very good, because it did a really good job of, like you said, blending the contemporary music. So we were kind of making sure to keep grounded in that that hip-hop vibe, some the low bass cuts and just some of the things that we got from being in Miami. Um, we also then, we get, speaking of being in Miami, we also get some Spanish music throughout this in interludes. We get just the different parts that make this feel like the location it's supposed to be in. And again, that's just huge, huge kudos to the team trying to make this as authentic as possible. You had touched on the, how the changing of the theme through each scene or each um, segment of this movie, it was very poignant. And they made a very, very big deal of, of making that obvious, we'll call it. There's a, a technique that they try to use, which is called chopped and screwed in this particular film with basically taking the idea of taking a theme slowing it down, uh, distorting it, changing some of the tonality on it, and creating something new. Um, And that chopped and screwed method is an old hip-hop method from the 80s that basically popularized itself in Houston. Um, A guy named DJ Screw kind of got it started, but it was the same idea where it took out some of the fast hip-hop beats that were coming out after Africa Bambata came out with um, some of his big music, and they're just like, wait, we're going to rotated a little bit so the idea that in this film they took some authentic music found a way to continue to put it into the 
beautiful aspects of this and then still did really cool orchestral things. Um, and, you know, the low bass notes that we get are, are cello notes, not necessarily subwoofer notes. And I think that's just a really cool way to, to bring music throughout your whole movie from start to finish. So uh, I like everything else with this film. It's just gorgeous. It fit the mood. Uh, we talked about that ocean scene time and time again, but somehow the scenery and the music for that scene is about as perfect of a movie shot as I've ever seen period and it has a lot to do with with the classical music that is playing and just kind of that vibe that you get overall just phenomenal job um, and uh, definitely a soundtrack that I will listen to again on its own without having this movie involved at all just because it's something that you would just kind of want to take home definitely and uh, Nicholas Bratel I guess did the secession theme song that's I just looked it no up way. so he did, he scored all four seasons of secession uh, and so that iconic, <laughs> iconic theme song from Secession, he did that. I That seemed that completely tracks with like yeah. how this movie sounded, too, and just how fitting it was. I like that um, when you mentioned the cello, I was like, that's like the perfect instrument for this story, because that is a strong, masculine, like velvety, vulnerable sound is what comes out of the cello. I just... Had to nerd out on that for a second. That's great. No, you're absolutely right. 100%. <laughs> I did find it fun that they didn't have any of the actors of the three of the boys meet each other at any point in time. I kind of had mentioned that earlier when they were doing rehearsals. But young Chiron, middle Chiron, and, and elderly Chiron, none of them were able to meet each other because they didn't want um, the director to have it. or didn't want the actors to have any parody. He wanted them to completely act off of the feeling of the character, not what the physical appearances or mannerisms of the other guys that they were representing and it's interesting to me how throughout the whole film while they physically don't look like each other i can tell that chiron through all three characters like the mannerisms of little Mm -hmm. come through in black and the same with kevin's character like the way that our writer director has been able to basically command this presence from his cast to be able to just look in someone's eyes and check and like, hey, this huge beefed out 200 whatever plus dude is this vulnerable six-year-old kid. Mm-hmm. How in the mm-hmm. world did you pull that off by just making me look at his eyes and have him just talk a little bit? There's something really, really special about what they were able to accomplish with that, having no interaction with the actors at all and just truly have it. Trust me, this is how I want you to do it. And give me your best performance um we had also kind of mentioned a little bit earlier of um, some of our other performances we talk about mom right we talk about paula um trying to and is it naomi harris holy cow that was a tour de force of a acting job to be able to mm-hmm. accurately represent what someone who struggles with a crack addiction would look like and then not only to that, but then to accurately represent kind of the phases as she goes from her stable job to having to sell the TV to begging money from your son, you know, sockless on the front lawn to then eventually mm-hmm. going to rehab. Just like the, her journey itself was such a beautiful envelope inside the other journeys that we're seeing. And it couldn't have been done without Naomi Harris. Naomi Harris was quoted as saying that she was never willing to ever go into that role of of doing a stereotypical black performance, meaning someone who would like uh, show a, a crack addicted individual. But she trusted the team so much that she was willing to 
kind of go there and give her all and it was just absolutely incredible so uh her and the other performances from some of our smaller characters really just made the whole thing in general awesome so i just wanted to touch on that and yeah i think what i love how this film goes from childhood to teenage uh to adult um it kind of shows that every single person you look at they they had a journey to get to where they were and there's reasons for why they are the way they are uh, for example, we we show or we see uh, Sharon's mom at the end, a very she she's just kind of very broken down, finally clean, but seems just so depressed and sorrowful. You know, we see Sharon, who's also a drug dealer, but since we've been following them like from you know his childhood, we see that like not every person is just how they appear or how they seem. It's there's this whole story to everybody's life that really like shows how how they got to where they were there's reasons behind you know why people are the way they are and i feel like in society too much we kind of just point fingers at people and box them in all the time and we don't actually try to step into other people's shoes and understand their whole story and that's why i think this film is just so good that it, it shows the three phases of uh each of these people's lives and it shows like how there's reasons behind everything uh for why people are the way they are you know yeah i i didn't know that all of our chiron actors never interacted with each other that really blows me away because you can 100 percent look and see like black's inner child in the way that he behaves and is it just because great storytelling has gone the whole way that helps but i feel like you just see it inside of him like the he portrays so it's just strong performances everywhere. Every single person involved. Anything else, or are we ready for reviews? I think that wraps it up for me. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, let's start with Kevin. Fantastic. I'm going to keep this relatively short, and I say that, and I probably will end up ranting. But we've been complimentary of this film from the beginning. Uh, complimentary? There we go. And it's for very good reason. When you give a film review, you want to touch on, obviously, all the positives, but then you want to try to find some negatives. And with this one, we haven't mentioned one. There hasn't been a time where any of us kind of were like, eh, this movie was, was groundbreaking. This movie was was revolutionary in the sense that it did something with a mainstream platform that hadn't been seen in mainstream movie up until that point. It did it with flair. It did it with class. It did it with an ability to talk about real life things and not make the audience shy away from them but embrace it the skills that we see from the teams putting this together from our casting director from the cinematography to the you know our writer director to the screenplay to every single person involved there has been a home run in every single aspect and that's just a huge testament to the idea where this all started and the ability to kind of empathize with your subjects, know that you have something to relate to them and then know that you have a subject to give to the world. This film was done beautifully. It was done with a lot of care. And I think that when you look back at the greats, the movies that really stand out in something that is bigger than movie history, I think that you look back and Moonlight is definitely one of those films. 
Um, I'm giving it an, an A plus 24. It really doesn't have any small downsides for me. It is a movie that I want to share with anybody who doesn't know about A24 and doesn't know about the production company, but also just a movie that you want to share with just someone who you feel could appreciate the story or someone who maybe has seen it and want to see and wants to see it again. And this is a lot of what individuals struggle with as far as feeling pride or home or an acceptance. And if more films like this can share a new generation that it's okay to be who you are, it's okay to embrace that, but it's also okay to ask that question, who is you, Chiron? Because we don't know, and Chiron doesn't know, and, and that is okay too. So watch this movie with an open mind and an open heart, and just be ready to kind of embrace what you see, and don't look at it from a review standpoint, but if you do, you're going to be in from a, a good treat too, because it's actually worth looking at from a critical aspect as well. So I guess what I'm saying is I already gave my review. When you're done with this, go watch it if you already haven't. It's uh, well worth your time. Mm-hmm. Eric, do you want to go or you want me to? Uh, I can go. Do it. Um. So I the only other film I've ever given a uh, A plus 24 to was Ex Machina. And I think I gave that film an A plus 24 because on top of the acting being phenomenal, the script being fantastic, and the cinematography being just pic- picturesque, it was like Ex Machina was a groundbreaking film in its own right. And uh, this one was definitely groundbreaking. And, and, like, I've never seen a film done quite in the way that this film was done. And just everything from the plot to the script to the acting and cinematography, it just, like, it it is done in a way that I've never seen before in film. And uh, it's, you know, everything you want in a film to be uh, unique in American cinema. I've been all over the place uh, talking about this uh, because this film is so hard to kind of put into words about how much it means to me and how much it resonates with me. And I think the first time I actually saw this, I actually was thrown off a bit by the tonal shift at the ending and how sweet it was and how accepting and loving and vulnerable it was. Like, it actually threw me off because of all the drama that built up to it. Uh, and, And then the third act is just like kind of like a big hug. Watching it this time, I'm a different person now uh, watching this. I've come out as a bisexual man, and I think I was, like, ready to feel vulnerable. And uh, I, I felt like Sharon deserved that self-acceptance and that that hem- happy ending was earned. And then that childhood kid that he was that we see at the very end with that beautiful shot that we zoom into, you can, like, look at your own self and be like, I still have that, like, little child in me at all times, too. And that personality you know it's it's still there just kind of it's the core of me at all times and it's just kind of what you know society has pinned on you that changes you in a way and that's why I think this film uh I I think I love it so much now and might be my favorite a24 film to date right up there with Ex Machina it's probably right at the same level and so I'm gonna give it an a plus 24 uh, this is, yeah, one of my favorite films of all time. And I think in 50 years, we still will be talking about this film as a turning point in American cinema. Yeah, agreed on that. Um, definitely, like, I feel like if I were to name maybe the top 10 movies that have really impacted me personally just on my watching experience, this one's up there. 
in the top five even. I'm not going to ever make that list because I don't want to even compare movies that are that impactful to me, but this one's way up there. What do I usually say about all of my critiques is make me feel something. What does this movie do? It takes you by the hands and makes you feel it the entire way through. And that couldn't be done if it didn't hit all the marks on every single aspect of filmmaking. And like we've been speaking throughout this whole entire review, what negatives did we have? I really couldn't change a thing about this. I really think it's just a master class, master, <laughs> master class. class in filmmaking, in storytelling, in the breaking of stereotypes in cinema. Historically, I'm so glad that this story is told. I'm so happy to see these vulnerable, strong characters, these fully fleshed out characters, this good and bad within every person, this actual love and vulnerability that's shown between these characters and the the inner child, like we're saying, too. Like, who can... What love is more pure than, like, that kind of love, too? The There's no walls between us. Let's break it all the back down. And the fact that that can be done over years and years, but you got to keep that core to you. And everybody has it there. You just need to give it a chance. I don't know. It's a beautiful story. Uh, beautiful, beautiful cinematography, soundtrack, acting, like we've been saying. I'm leading. I'm hyping all this part up. You guys know how I feel about it already. And I'm going to square it out between the three of us with another A plus 24 review. <laughs> Bam. And with that, everyone, thank you for going along on this ride with us. Um, I know that it's not nearly as good as actually watching the movie Moonlight, which I recommend we all do over and over again because there's so many more layers to it. And uh, thank you to everyone involved in even making that film for doing it. Um, I hope that the amount of lives that you've impacted, that you see that every single day for as long as you like live. Like, Thank you for making this movie. Thanks, now, A24. <laughs> and thank you, A24. And Barry Jenkins and Terrell McCraney. <laughs> you yeah. name them, man. You keep going, yes. right? Every single yeah. one of them. And <laughs> thank you, audience, for listening. If you appreciate what we do, if you want to have conversations with us, we're available on all social media. Um, reach out. Let's get in touch. Follow us. Review us. And most importantly, thanks so much for listening. Bye-bye.